0: is a great example of that text we just heard, 2 John, verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. I'm not saying that Peter doesn't have God forever, but when he sees this marvelous metamorphosis of Christ, when he watches this normal man, or so it would appear, shine like the sun, revealing all that glory that was in the burning bush before Moses so long ago. And he sees Moses and Elijah there. He recognizes Moses was the great prophet of the Old Testament. And Elijah, like him, the great prophet who followed him, no one else ever did what Elijah really did. He says, let's set up these three tents, these three places where everybody can come and listen to you three great prophets teach. That's when God the Father gets involved. It is not often that God the Father will speak apart from Jesus Christ. In fact, you might have thought before today that the burning bush was God the Father, but it's not. It's very clear. It's the angel of the Lord. That's Jesus before he's got flesh. God the Father rarely, if ever, lets anything come other than through the angel of the Lord and then his one son, Jesus Christ. And that's the point of 2 John. But at this moment, and that is baptism, a very few moments, you hear this voice that's not Jesus and not the Spirit speaking. He gets involved to make sure that Peter and James and John know that one greater than Moses is here, one far surpassing Elijah is here. These are not three who are equals. This is one who is the greatest. So he says, this is my beloved son, and don't miss the commandment. Listen to him. Listen to him. That's what John, in his second letter, is concerned the church not forget to do. Again, I believe it's on page 1025. We're going to look through the entire letter today. It's so brief. I think we can get through all of it. And we'll leave third John for the late service with the longer sermon. So if you'd like to find that later, check out on YouTube, How to Read the Bible, 3 John Part 2. It should be the only one in the whole world. And you can find, uh, 2 John Part 2, you can find that bit with 3 John included. But let's just start with verses 9 through 11 first here, though. Okay? So again, he says this, that everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. This not only means that anyone who tries to say, there are many paths to heaven. There are many roads to God. All religions are ultimately true. He's, he's saying, yes, indeed, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't have the true God at all. But he's also saying that anyone who says, I'm a Christian, but there's more than just Jesus. There's more about it. It's about you and what you can do and how you can grow and what you can achieve and how you should take risks and how you can prosper and how all this and that and this and that. Anyone who goes on ahead and leaves behind at the point of the New Testament is he is risen. Alleluia. If they leave that behind, they've left God behind. Is this to say That Christians only need the gospel? Is this to say that Christians no longer need to hear about the law? That is the commands of God that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves? No, not at all. But it is to say that if you attempt to love your neighbor as yourself, apart from the reality that you can't do it, but Jesus already did it to you, well, then you're going to end up casting yourself into the fires of hell with great pride. Or perhaps despair. Those are twin sisters, pride and despair. Yes? The mystery of law and gospel is that the gospel, Jesus being risen from the dead on account of his justifying you, is the first power that exists to make you love the law. Up to that point, up to your knowledge that God has you and will never let you go, that he's bought you with the price, that you belong to him now, that he's adopted you as a child, so there is nothing to fear. Before that, all of the keeping of the commandments of God are selfish. Why do you try to love your neighbor? Why do you try to do good things? It's so you don't get in trouble. It's so that something bad doesn't happen to you. It's so you can get something good out of it. It's all about you. But the real law of love is not about you. That's why turning the other cheek and loving your enemy is so foreign to us by nature. Because that won't work. If I try to actually serve my my, my enemy in a good way, what will happen to me? I'll be hurt by that. So unless I have some greater foundation than this life to stand on, why would I ever think that makes sense? But when I know that my foundation is not this life, but Christ being risen from the dead, now I have a different place to come from. And I'm not saying that you will ever do this perfectly. Your flesh will cling to you till the day that you die. But the glimmer, the hope, the insight that that enemy of yours is not to be hated, but pitied, that comes from knowing the mercy that God has had upon you to not just pity you, but to take your place and to take all of your burden on himself and to pay for it on the cross. And that's why anyone who goes past that teaching doesn't have God. They've gone on to some other thing that ultimately will curve back inward on themselves. Yeah. So again, everyone who goes on and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, That word there in the Greek is didaskalos. Can you say that with me? Didaskalos. It means teaching. Whenever you see, or doctrine, whenever you see someone call Jesus teacher, it can mean either rabbi or didaskalos. Those who call him rabbi, they don't believe in him. Those who call him didaskalos, you might think of Mary, Uh, Mary, um, uh, the, the sister of Martha, who meets him out by the road when her brother Lazarus is dead she calls him teacher she means i trust you she means your words are true and so john is not only saying remember who jesus is what jesus has done what jesus is coming to do but as god the father said from the cloud listen to his words listen to his words if you've picked up one of those sons of solomon packets back there i know they're created for men and we do have a daughters of wisdom one in the works i I really do hope we have it done by Easter. But if you pick it up and you look at the back, after those first nine psalms that we are trying to get as many Christian men to pray every day as possible, under the assumption that it can't hurt us, (laughs) it can't do any bad to us if we're all praying the same psalms together. If you want to do more, at the back, there's two other suggestions. One of them is that you would open up Psalm 119 every day. This Psalm is so long that most people look at it and close the book without starting. It's just, I can't do it. It's way too long. And frankly, I I, kind of understand that. But it's also divided into a whole bunch of stanzas that are eight verses long. And so what you could do is read eight verses a day for about 24 days, I think it is, maybe 23 days, and then start over, eight verses a day. And it creates a pattern for prayer in your life month to month to month that establishes you in the Word of God. That's one of the suggestions. But the other suggestion is that you would do the same thing only with the red letters in the Gospels. That is, every day, just find the next thing Jesus says. One verse. Just find the next thing Jesus says and maybe write it on a card. Maybe write a thought you had because of it on a card and contemplate that for the day. Now, some days it's going to be a little strange, a little harder than others, but what you will do is you will listen to Jesus. Uh, There are movements out there that say red letters are the only letters we should listen to and the rest of the Bible isn't true and only listen to the red letters. That's a bunch of poppycock, that's a bunch of nonsense. But we shouldn't let that undo the fact that these are the actual words God in the flesh spoke when he was here teaching us what is true. And so when the Father says to listen to him, he means it. And if you do, I promise you, you will not go ahead or be lagging behind, but you will abide in the precious and everlasting words of life. The words of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Abide in his teaching. It says in the rest of the verse, verse 9, whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. This is where you can be confident. That knowing who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he's coming again to do is enough. I get it. Every day and every week, I'm overwhelmed by all the stuff I think I need to do. Whether it's the small things in the house or the big dreams that I think I'm going to make happen. I look at them and they weigh me down. And I think it's too much. I can't pass possibly do it. But the thing that keeps me alive... The thing that gives me peace in the heart at the end of the day is remembering that I'm baptized into Jesus. And even if I don't bring to pass all of my dreams and goals, or even if I fail in this small moment today, that's not going to change how he sees me. He already has chosen me as a brother and as a son of the father and abiding in that thought, remaining in that truth, not letting anybody come and teach something different than that is Christianity. It's not to say you don't want to know what baptism means because that's how you're in Jesus. It's not to say that the Lord's Supper's teaching doesn't matter. That's how Jesus abides in you. But it is to say, That the heartbeat of this entire thing is having no fear in the sight of the Almighty God as he pours out wrath on this planet because you know you're going to walk through it as if through waves on dry ground. Mm. Abide in the teaching. You have the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. That's pretty mean, don't you think? Uh, can we Americans be so inhospitable ever? Yeah, uh, I'm not so sure we can be. What's he getting at here? Is he saying that if your neighbor, who's a desperate pagan, says hello over the backyard fence, you're supposed to turn your back on him? No, no. It's saying if a pastor or a Christian who wants to purport to be a great and wise Christian begins to say things that are different than what Jesus said it's time to break ties with that person. You don't want to hold them close. You don't want to trust them. Yes? You don't want to let them be the leaven that leavens your lump. In fact, to participate with them is to become one with them. Now, where should you most desperately apply this? To me. (laughs) This is about how you listen to me. And if you catch me saying something some week that leaves you thinking, you gotta save yourself, you need to grab me by the ear and say, Pastor, I get it, but you went too far. Tell me about Jesus. And I'll say, thank you. I'm sorry. I'll try harder. (laughs) You see the point though, yes? This is again a lost teaching in American Christianity, and it's a good thing in a sense amongst the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. You respect your pastors. You see someone, you hear they're a pastor, and you show them a reverence for the office. That's not bad. But if they aren't actually teaching what the Bible says, it can be bad. Because now they're desecrating the office and you won't confront them. When as a body, as the flock, you do have not only that power, but that duty. And to turn your back, to not eat from his hand. Imagine again how the Lord's Supper works and this idea of closed communion. You can see here why you don't want to commune with those who teach something that's gone ahead and left Christ behind all right so that's verses 9 through 11 uh verses 12 through 13 show up and they're very similar to the end of third john he says though i have much to write to you i would rather not use paper and ink instead i hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete the children of your elect sister greet you kind of go backwards through that the children of your elect sister it seems like uh, 2nd and 3rd John are a pair of letters sent by St. John, who is the overseer of at least seven churches in Asia Minor, to one of these churches. And again, there were more of them in Asia Minor, not just the ones mentioned in the book of Revelation. And the concept of an elect sister is referring then to one of those congregations. He's saying, My congregation or I'm still the pastor, still preaching every week, they all greet you. But he's also acknowledging that they're not so far away from each other, that he hopes to see him soon. Now, again, I'm putting pieces together and scholars can debate about where John was when he wrote this and which churches this is referring to, because frankly, we don't really know. But again, in the next letter, he's gonna say the same thing, And we won't look at that text today, but whereas this letter is all to this elect sister, the next letter is to a guy named Gaius. And he mentions two other people by name, one who Gaius is to watch out for and one who Gaius is to take care of. And the the impression here, again, is that these are two letters to the same place, one to the congregation and one to the pastor. And in both cases, he intends to encourage them to remain faithful to what they have had from the beginning. We'll look at that again here in a moment. And that he says, as for the rest of it, I'm going to come and see you soon. So for there, let's go ahead and look through those first eight verses of 2 John here, where he opens up with this same picture of the woman being the church. Verse 1, he says, the elder, that's himself. Elder means uh, it's a Presbyteros, you've heard of the Presbyterians, right? They take their name from this word. And so the reason they call themselves Presbyterians is because they believe that one of the hallmarks of the church, the thing that makes the church the church, is you have a ruling board of elders. That is, there are certain men who sit over the rest of the congregation and make all the big decisions for the congregation. It's not quite what our board of elders is and the history of how Lutherans got boards of elders versus councils and all that. That's a, that's a fun rabbit hole to run down. But what we can say for sure is we do not believe that the structure of our organization out there, as we debate how to manage the church, we don't consider that a mark of the church. It's okay if you want to have a ruling board of elders that makes all the decisions. It's okay if you just want to let the priests make all the decisions. It's okay if you want to get together once a month or once every quarter and all together make all the decisions. None of those things make you Christian or stop you from being Christian. For us, the mark of the church is this Holy Supper we take. Yeah, This is the sign and seal and the testimony. This is where it really matters. So in any case, though, they take their name Presbyterian elder from the New Testament's use of the word elder to talk about those who manage the church. Here he is, the elder of this congregation. I would encourage you, though, to hear this more like we say pastor than like we say board of elders. So he could be saying the pastor. It's just a different word for that. To the elect lady. There's that idea of a woman, again, who has been elect. And so this is to the congregation. You could also hear this as to the entire church. That's true as well. For indeed, the entire church of Jesus Christ is the bride of Christ. You've heard that before, right? Ephesians chapter 5 is very clear that our gift of marriage, man and woman for the sake of children, is a picture of the greater mystery of God and his church for the sake of salvation. So here John is just playing on that idea as he introduces the letter to the elect lady, the congregation, and her children, the members of the congregation whom i love in truth this is pretty key john is all about love he talks about love a lot the challenge is that as americans our word love is a paltry and limp-wristed kind of thing it tends to mean be nice more than actually stand on the truth in fact one of the great things that i mentioned in the voice of the shepherd this morning there's an article that you can go read if you want to but how certain evangelical leaders were used to basically make the evangelical church act like a state church, as a historical thing there, during this last two years, the big argument that they use, obey the state no matter what, is that's what love is. John doesn't think love is just being nice or just doing what you're told. Notice how close the word truth is to the word love. We live in a time when people want to set love against truth. And if you stand up and you say, this is true, people will say, that's not loving. And this goes way back in the last two years. You've heard it said, judge not, lest ye be judged. The moment you actually say something somebody might disagree with, you know how that's been used against us, even though those are Jesus' own words. And Jesus didn't mean, I'm not the way and the truth and the life, huh? He meant, rather, we shouldn't think we have judgment in ourselves, but should judge rightly according to what his word says. So he says, I love you in the truth. And what I want you to see is how love and truth go hand in hand. They're two sides of one coin, and you can't have one without the other. And not only I, he says, but also all who know the truth. This connection between love and truth is going to continue through the entire letter. Verse 2. Because of the truth that abides in us. Can you say didaskalos again? Didaskalos, teaching, truth, same idea, words that never change, things you can found your life upon. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Yes, he is risen. Hallelujah. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again in order that we might dwell forever in innocence and righteousness and blessedness with every tear wiped from our eye as this old earth is burned to a crisp, but a new heavens and a new earth where you will live with new bodies will never pass away. The truth is in us and will be with us forever. Verse three, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. From God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Notice how he's building now. Truth and love, one coin. Trinitarian truth. Jesus is the Son of the Father. He takes us to the Father, part of truth and love. That revelation. And what does this bring us? Grace, mercy, and peace. Things everybody wants more of, do we not? He says in verse 4, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Now, what this probably means is that people from this town who are part of this congregation have visited or gotten over to where John is serving, and he walked, ran into them, and they had a conversation, and they confessed the same truth that all Christians confess everywhere that Christ is God, and that to love your neighbor as yourself is the chief commandment after loving God above all things. And he was glad to find this. He's encouraging them as a congregation. Not only do you say you're a church, you actually are the church, just as you've been given as a command by the Father. Verse 5, And now I ask you, dear lady, dear congregation, I plead with you, Not as though I were writing to you a new commandment. He's not going to teach you something you don't know yet. He's going to repeat something you do know. Because, well, we tend to forget. And we need to hear it again. Not a new commandment. But the one we have had from the beginning. That we love one another. I talked about this last week. I think I mentioned this even at the start of this sermon that to see the other person, even your enemy, and to be big enough because you know you're immortal now, to look on them not as someone you've got to outdo, outwit, or outlive, but to see them as someone who Christ died for, and God willing believes it, but if they don't, still is to be pitied and shown mercy, really above all things. That is what it means to strive to love each other. And this is not to say you have to let your enemy destroy you. But it is to say, especially within the church, that all of us here are to seek the good of each other before we seek our personal goods in the world. That we are to see each other and our sojourn toward the life of the world to come as more eternal than whatever else it is we achieve in this world. Now, verse 6 says, And this is love. He's going to define it, although it's going to be a little brief. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just you have heard it as you have heard it from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. But here's the trick, right? He used commandments plural. What's he referring to? And for we Lutherans who should know our catechism, that word commandment has some baggage with it. It's Not bad baggage, it's good baggage. We think of the 10 commandments, right? And in fact, that's a good place to go from this. When it says to walk in his commandments, it is indeed to remember what it is to do good and what it is to do evil. Let's go through them real quickly. First commandment, to love God. Second commandment, to call on his name. Third commandment, to go to church and hear his word. Fourth commandment, to submit submit to the authorities in the world because they serve for your good. Fifth commandment, don't kill people. Sixth commandment, hold marriage in high esteem. Seventh commandment, don't steal stuff. Eighth commandment, tell the truth. Ninth and 10th commandments, don't try to be more than you are. That's a great summary of what a good life looks like. And so also those two great commandments to love God above all things and love your neighbor as yourself. This also is a wonderful, what, handbook for how to walk straight in life? But let's not go too fast past those things that Jesus instituted as commands for all nations that are, shall I say, more gospel than law? He said, go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son. That's a commandment. He said, take and eat. This is my body. That's a commandment. Huh? Are those things you do to earn righteousness? No, those are places where his commandments have instituted in you promises that shall never pass away. And again, this is love. That he did this for us, that this changes us, so now we begin to see those around us as, well, being put here for us to love as well. Now, I want to emphasize this. Uh, we have just a few moments left here. If you flip backwards uh, into First John and go to chapter 3, verse 16, this starts on page 1022. He says the same thing, but he expands it even more and he makes it very clear that the ultimate commandment is the one to cling to the teaching of Christ, that he is the son of God who saves you more than it is him calling you back to doing good works to be saved. Good works are good. They just don't save you. I'm just gonna read this section. We won't really talk about it, but I want you to hear it. Chapter three, verse 16 through 23. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, but if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure our hearts before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us. just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abide in God and God in him. Now, one more verse in 2 John to close the whole thing up. If you flip back to page 1025, we haven't looked at verse seven. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver, and the antichrist at the late service last week i spent a good 15 minutes on the teaching of the antichrist which shows up a lot more in first john than second john and we talked about why the pope is called the antichrist and what the man of lawlessness in second thessalonians is about if you'd like to find that on youtube just look for how to read the bible first john part two but here he makes it very clear without having to go into all that detail who's the antichrist Anybody who does not confess that Jesus is the Christ, anybody who does not believe that the Son of God took on flesh, died, and rose again for the salvation of mankind, they're not a Christian. This is what makes Christianity Christianity. He is the heartbeat of it all. And the warning here is there are many deceivers who don't believe that. As nice as it would be to have everybody come to church and believe in Christ, as wonderful as it would be to have everybody join us in paradise, as much as God does not desire the death of the wicked, but would rather that he turn from his ways and live. The sad reality is that the wicked will not turn. And many will follow that wide path to destruction. And they will be deceived because they didn't pay attention to the deceivers who came along. They didn't get look to the warning that there would be deceivers. Not such are you. Remember, that's not the end of the book. He now begins to say that everyone who goes on ahead doesn't have the teaching, but if you abide in Christ, you have the teaching. And again, now, that is precisely why you're here. It's why you come week in and week out. It's why we have the Lord's Supper available every major service that we have, so that you may abide in the teaching that he is risen. Hallelujah. And that until he comes again, when you eat this bread and drink from this cup, you proclaim his death and your being bound to him, abiding in him and he in you forever and ever. Amen. In the name of